Good morning. Good to see you all. Open up in your Bible to the book of Hebrews as we continue reading through Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 11. And this morning, uh, though we will be looking at verses 32 through the beginning of 35, I'm going to read all the way through to 38. So Hebrews 11, 32 to 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is God's living and active and holy and inspired word. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless it to our lives this morning. Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, for an opportunity yet again as your people, called together by your grace, underneath the headship of your Son, Jesus, and empowered by the power of your Spirit. Lord, help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth. Father, make your word to conform our hearts into what we see herein. May the truths of your Scriptures bring us mightily to trust in and love and follow our Savior Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would do so not only for our good and our sanctification, but Father, we pray ultimately for your glory, that the fame of your name would be made great, not only here within our midst this morning as we worship you, but oh, that it would reverberate out into the community and the city and into the nations. Father, may Christ be all and in all. We pray in his name. Amen. So I wonder what your thoughts have been over this past couple of months, really, where we've been working so slowly and painstakingly through this chapter, Hebrews 11, all on the anatomy and focus of faith. I pray it hasn't just been an interesting study, puffing up our heads and our intellects on what faith is, but rather that you've been built up and encouraged in faith. I pray that we've walked out of here. I I know I've seen evidence in my own life of of wrestling with faithfulness and trying to be more faithful. Scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Know how I pray we've grown in our faith as a church, as we've worked through this marvelous section, gaining real benefits from the passage. 
faith is confidence, right? Um, a friend here in the church sent me a video earlier this week of uh, a debate between uh, a believer and an atheist, and the atheist wanting to make his point said, well, you, you have your blind faith, but, but me, according to science, we have confidence in what we can see. And the wise believer argued back, confidence, you mean from the Latin with faith, con, fide. <laughs> and the atheist said, well, oh, I guess so. That's what faith is. It's confidence. There's a certainty within faith, an assurance of things hoped for, the author tells us, the conviction, the confidence of things not seen. Now, this morning, we're going to see the power that comes from this confidence. There's, there's an empowering facet, I think, connected with faith. But we need to remind ourselves of what this whole chapter is doing. The, the aim of this whole chapter, if you remember, the goal of it all is that our author wants us to get to Jesus. And so as he's been, he's working his way slowly through the grand history of God's redemption, he begins now to kind of pick up the pace, Right? Do you see what he says in verse 32? And what more shall I say? Evidently, he has a lot more he can say. He's a preacher. He has words on words on words. But he's wanting to get to his main point, and so he says, time would fail me if I kept unpacking each instance of faith as seen throughout the Old Testament like we've been doing, like we've seen with Abraham and with Moses and with Noah and with all the patriarchs. I don't have the time, he says. And so we get this rapid-fire list, this staccato of names where he kind of shoots off in rapid-fire the experiences and names, and, and it's driving us like a rush of energy to his main point and the crescendo of it all. You remember chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, fixing our eyes upon Jesus Christ. It's to the person of Jesus that he wants us to be firmly fixated upon, putting our confidence ultimately in him. Once we have the eyes of faith centered on him, then, we'll, then we can begin to live lives of faith. In fact, we can begin to live lives that are empowered by faith. I know that sounds a bit cliche. I cringed when I wrote that out. I hate to say it because we live in a day and an age, don't we? Where so many pseudo-Christian speakers have taken the language of faith. And, and of being faithful, and have turned it into this kind of self-help guide, using the language of Scripture to mask their self-focused and self-help nonsense. But they draw people in by saying things like, don't you want to live the empowered life? If you have faith, you have power. That'll preach. And what they usually mean by that is that there's this inherent power within you that's kind of trapped there, dormant and unused, until you unlock it and unleash it by the key of faith. So they talk about a powerful faith. And it sounds good. It sounds biblical. But I don't think they're right. In fact, I think it's extremely dishonest, deceitful, a bit devilish. But nonetheless, the passage before us is laying out a picture of a power that comes through faith. I think that's undeniable. It's clear that he's showing us what powerful things can happen in our lives when we live by faith. 
But we need to be clear, it's an empowered life that stands in stark contrast to the self-help nonsense we see and hear so much about today. Hopefully we can see why as we unpack the passage. One immediate reason we can say this is that if you just look at the paragraph that we just read as a whole, you'll notice that the author continues with unpacking what faith looks like, but he does so in the second half of the paragraph, verses 35 through 38, not showing us a faith that is powerful, but actually a faith in the midst of weakness, right? A faith that leads to imprisonment. A faith that is faithful in death. You see that? Others suffered mocking, imprisonment. In faith, they were sown in two and and killed by the sword. Their lives of faith led them to being poor and destitute and without a home, living in caves and in the wilderness. This is gloriously so contrary to the fantasy world of our modern faith healers and prosperity gurus Having faith isn't a kind of magical thing that makes life powerful. Faith suffers. We'll look at that more next week. But this morning, we do want to look at and unpack what it means to live a life of faith that is empowering. Let's let the word of God guide us here. Just because so many people twist and misuse this truth doesn't mean that we have to throw it all out together. They don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, The first thing we need to see is that faith is incredibly diverse. You see that in verse 32? There's an encouraging diversity of faith seen in the lives of men like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Six individuals and many more under the title of the prophets who, if we were to read their stories and take the time this morning to unpack their lives, we'd see how incredibly different they all were. How idiosyncratic each one of them were. David, a a warrior poet, who loved spending his spare time, not at the gym, playing football. No, he loved spending his spare time writing poetry, listening and singing music. Vastly different from the brute power of Samson, a sensuous man who in his spare time enjoyed the sport of killing Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Gideon, a timid and and weak-willed man who needed sign after sign after sign to even begin obeying God's will, compared to the prophet Samuel, who even from childhood boldly approached kings and warriors pronouncing the word of God honoring and obeying immediately when God spoke. Do you see the picture being painted here? The mold of saving faith is a uniquely idiosyncratic mold. The life of faith comes to you as you, individually. And you're called never to stop being who you are. The life of faith does not press you into a mold that makes you just like everyone else, a a Stepford wife in the faith. Having faith doesn't mean you stop being who you're supposed to be. You do know that God made each one of you uniquely you. And coming into the life of faith is nothing more than the power of God conforming you in all your God-given uniqueness, the, the weird and funny and beautiful and strange little characteristics that make you you and conforming them more into Christ. And that's what's so beautiful about all of us being the body 
of Christ together. In unity, underneath the headship of Christ, we're, we're all individuals. And our faith is expressed in different ways. We're living stones being built up together to form the temple of God. And how encouraging should that be to us this morning? That when we gather together as saints, we don't have to look and act and even speak the same way. As long as we're being conformed to Christ, submitting to his revealed will and and living lives of holiness, our faith can look and feel, well, a bit different. Some of you, out of a deep and joyful faithfulness to Christ, you really like to lift up your hands in worship, closing your eyes as you belt out that song, maybe even doing one of these things. Other of us, out of reverent faith, worship God mightily with our heads bowed and our hands stuck to our side. And God loves it both. Faithfulness ought not to be measured or judged by whether or not you come to church and you know, a nice pressed pair of khakis, a, a Brooks Brothers suit, and a J. Crew tie. Faithfulness isn't more authentic if you come to church in skinny jeans and a pair of Jordans, tattoos all out and about, and a latte in hand with cool, thick rimmed glasses. Both pictures, if in honest submission to Christ and in brotherly love for one another, can be and ought to be seen as uniquely faithful. Let's be careful not to paint a picture of faithfulness after our own image, judging others based on standards the scriptures just don't speak about. And there's a unique power seen in that, isn't it? There's a unique power seen in that kind of faith. Nowhere else in the world can you get such diversity of people, such a scattering of ethnic, socioeconomic, and culturally diverse people from all over the age spectrum and find such deep unity. That's powerful. The outside has to look in on this community of faith and ask the question, what is it that allows them to sit side by side together? One voted this way and the other voted that way. One grew up eating this and the other eating that, singing this way and singing that way, and yet they can cry together and look each other in the eyes and from the heart say, brother, sister, and leave hugging, and then go back to the neighborhoods which might be a little bit different. But here all that is done away with, and there's a deep unity. That's powerful. What empowers them, says the outside world? And the answer has to be that we look to Christ. We're tuned together upon our elder brother, Jesus Christ. You can get a hundred different pianos in the room, all tuned differently and and off-tune, and you cannot start getting them all in tune by tuning them according to one another, because they're all off. What do you do? You tune them according to the right tuning fork. They're all focused on that one right tuning fork. And as soon as all our eyes are focused on Christ, oh, the unity begins to be evident. The next thing we want to see is that there's a remarkable heroism that comes with faith. And we see that in verses 33 and 34. Those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the sword. The author is taking us and and he's going, look what faith in God achieved for these men and women. That's what he's saying to us through these verses. It was faith that gave strength to the weary. 
Faith which gave hope to the hopeless. It was faith that encouraged the fearful. And he's saying to them, faith in God will enable you to cope with your adversities, your discouragements, your disappointments, whatever they are. It'll enable you to even be a super conqueror. Now, of course, the prerequisite to this, and we need to make sure we're seeing this, the prerequisite is that for problems and conflicts to arise, adversities and disappointments, they have to be the God-ordained arena in which faith can then be exercised. There's no powerful faith without the problem. You see that, right? With all these examples, faith is exercised in power, but only in and through specific situations of adversity. Daniel couldn't have exercised such faith if God hadn't allowed him to be thrown into the lion's den. David couldn't have walked in faith if God hadn't raised up Saul to go after him, trying to kill him every chance he got. And here's why we need to be reminded of this. First, it ought to encourage us. When we do face trials of various kinds, those trials are not outside the control of God, twiddling his thumbs, saying, oh, sorry, didn't see that one. No, but they're divinely allowed in order to strengthen us in our faith. God wants you to be strong in your faith. God wants you to exercise the muscles of faith that he's given you. And he delights in that. And so it is for that very reason that James, the brother of Jesus, can write in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that this testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. God working through that to perfect you and complete you in sanctification so that you lack nothing. Secondly, these moments of adversity, these seasons and times when God allows sovereignly problems to arise, well, they're given for you to be reminded that you are not strong. God allows trials precisely because he wants you to look to him, not yourself. That's what faith is, right? Faith isn't being strong. Faith is realizing your weakness and reliance upon God who is strong. You know the story of Gideon? who the author brings up here. A small man who was a part of the smallest tribe, Benjamin, the smallest clan within that small tribe. And God says, I want to use you to defeat the Canaanites who are over you. And he's weary and weak-willed about it, but he shows faith. And he gets this, this impressive army of Israelites. And what does God do? Well, it's, that's too much. You're a little bit too strong, Gideon. Um, you're not getting that it's me who's going to do this. So he has them all go down to the brook, and, and he says, look, everybody who, who, who drinks like this, put them aside. Everyone who, who laps it up just from the river to their mouth, I want them. And he, and he winnows. And it's a pointless. There's, there's nothing inherently you know, stronger about a man who drinks from the brook without his hands. It's a pointless and almost silly distinction. But it's given for the main point of saying, I don't want your best. I don't want the Navy SEALs of Israel. I'm going to choose. And he winnows it down to 300. And then there's these 300 Spartans with their swords. No. God gives them clay pots and torches. 
and says, go hide in the woods and pretend like there's more. 300. And what happens? The text says God routed the Canaanite army. Gideon, your faithfulness in this problem was for you to see that you're weak and I'm strong. God purposefully bringing Gideon more and more into a place of weakness just so he could be built up in his faith. Friends, if you're not aware of your own weakness and believe that you have strength enough in and of yourself to fight this fight and endure to the end by your own strength and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, brother or sister, you are in a serious spiritual state of danger. We're told explicitly throughout Scripture that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why? Because faith by its very nature, well, it's worshipful. Faith makes much of God. It is confidence, not in yourself, boasting in and making much of what you can do, but it's confidence in God. We need to hammer this point down securely because I'm telling you, by and large, people don't get this truth. Faith doesn't save you. Have you heard a pastor say that before? Faith in Jesus Christ doesn't save you. No, it's Jesus who saves you. It's Jesus Christ who, through faith, is saving you. It's not faith that will take you to heaven. Jesus Christ will take you to heaven. So please don't leave here saying, oh, I I need faith. No, you need God. You need Jesus Christ. Don't come away from this sermon saying, "I, I believe in faith. I don't believe in faith. And the author of Hebrews doesn't want you to believe in believing. The text is demanding us to look with confidence to God, to Jesus Christ. You hear this all the time, right? Oh, I believe in prayer. I believe in the power of prayer. I don't believe in prayer. I believe in God, and therefore I pray, because it's God who calls me, commands me to pray. That's why I pray. My confidence isn't in the inherent power of believing, in the inherent power of prayer. And my confidence, my faith is entirely in God, and it's him who is calling me to this work. That's how faith works, friends. Faith looks with assurance to God, relying upon and trusting with confidence entirely upon God. And that's what this litany of examples is showing us. All these experiences where it was God who powerfully worked within the faithful. It was God who, through the faithful reliance of David, conquered surrounding kingdoms. It was God who, through Daniel, stopped the mouths of lions. It was God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, in fact, who came to the aid of faithful Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and quenched the power of fire. There was nothing in them in that moment that could have done anything but get burned. But God. It was God who gave strength to blind and imprisoned Samson. All these things. Do you see? It's not great faith that's the focus of this section, of this entire chapter, really. It's faith in a great God that we're being called to. And this is really one of the bigger ways, isn't it, in how the Bible talks about living an empowered life by faith. It's not power within us, unlocked by the key of faith. It's not even our faith that's powerful. Again, friends, it's God. But this leads us to our third point, which is this. 
Because faith is confidence that looks to God, faith can take risks. Faith can take real risks. Because faith realizes that God, well, he can do the impossible, can't he? And so by faith, we can take risks. Barak appears in the book of Judges, who in Judges 4 goes up against the Canaanite army, an army underneath the leadership of what the text says is the fearsome general Sisera. I mean, even the name is great. Sisera was the commander who overlooked 900 chariots. In today's technological vocabulary, that's the same thing as saying me and a couple guys from church, uh, we're going to want to stand up to the U.S. Army against 900 tanks. You've got to realize that Barak and the Israelites, they've been underneath Canaanite control and rule for about 20 years. And in those days, subdued people, they weren't allowed to just like make weapons. All they had was their farming materials. Nothing iron, because the Canaanites knew, we don't want a rebellion. But here comes Barak and Deborah, and they have faith, and they look to God, and they give this stirring speech and take risk, and then they do the seemingly impossible. And do you know what the text actually says in Judges? Judges 4 says, It was the Lord who went out before Barak and who routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army. On that day, God, Yahweh, subdued Canaan before the people. God's power was seen in in and through their risk-taking faith. Risk is any action, anything really, that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss, right? And what I think we see in these examples is that faith is commended precisely because there is this ever-present danger of injury or loss. There's faith only in the face of risk. Jephthah, in fact, acts on faith even though he knows he could lose his daughter. Samson risks his life in order to act on faith. And I think we need to ask the question, what does risk look like for us? Individually as Christians, for us as a church, what does faithful risk look like for me? There's a whole scale to this. Faithful risk can range anywhere from giving more to the mission of the church at the risk of losing maybe that financial cushion at home for the end of the month to actually going out on mission to start a church in a place where you can lose your life for claiming Christ. And what I think this passage is, is doing is pushing us into is at least asking the question, am I living with risk? Does my faith evidence a riskiness that says, God is in control, and God can do the impossible. We can ask that question precisely because we, well, we know that God never takes any risks, does he? I mean that, literally. Inherent in the idea of risk is is not knowing the outcome. Riskiness is only a risk when you don't know fully what the outcome is going to be. But God not only knows the outcome, but sovereignly appoints the outcome for everything. And so because that's true, because we have confident faith in that God, we can take risks and live faithful lives where real risk on our part, it's possible. Look, we live in a world where safety is king. The gods of comfort and safety, they, 
They've been lulling us, so many of us, to sleep that we're not even thinking about faith being the means to live lives of risk. I'm a faithful Christian. Do you see that as a benefit to take risk? We associate faith with trusting God to get us a happy and secure and safe and risk-free life. But this passage, I hope, is disabusing us of any of that notion. The Apostle Paul, by faith, lived the rest of his life in risky mission for the cause of Christ. Shipwrecked countless times. Going into places where he'd know, just seeing his face, he'd be stoned. Whipped. Living out in tents with wild animals just to get the gospel to the next city. Real risk. The Apostle Peter, after being warned not to preach about Jesus and give the gospel in Jerusalem anymore, on threat of imprisonment or even worse, what does he do? Well, he gets back up, he takes the risk, and he continued to evangelize. The whole point of Hebrews is the author calling these Hebrew Christians to risk their lives by continuing to believe in and endure with Christ. You're tempted to go back to the Judaism and the worship in the temple so that you don't face persecution. Take the risk and keep going. It's eternally weighty and it matters. Faith takes risks. And here's why we as Christians, I think, can more than anyone else truly take risks. If we're truly believing in Jesus, if we've put our faith and confidence in him, then the most significant risk of all is entirely taken away. In Jesus Christ, our eternity is secure. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus promises us in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he still live. Do you hear that? When the threat of death, what for most of us might be the ultimate risk, when death becomes, well now, a door to paradise the final barrier to temporal risk, it's broken. When a Christian says, like Paul does, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain, he's free now to live in a way where by faith, almost nothing is impossible. And friends, we need to make this as clear as we can. The ultimate risk is not death. The ultimate risk is eternal death. The second death where eternity will gnaw at you forever and ever and ever and ever without hope. And perhaps some of you here this morning are wrongly living just fine with that risk. You would dare not risk any of your finances. You'd never risk the comfort and safety you've built up for yourself. You won't come close to risking your retirement and certainly not your life. And yet, you've given no thought whatsoever to the far greater and ultimate risk of what happens after this life. If that's you this morning, Christ calls you to come and find ultimate security in him. None of the things with which you are clinging so tightly to will save you or give you security after this life. They'll fade away like smoke between your fingers. But the eternally solid rock of Christ He who gave himself as a sacrifice for you, who in faithfulness himself went to the cross and died for you, there you will find ultimate security 
And in Jesus, all eternal risk is entirely and forevermore removed. Verse 35 talks about the power of faith in how women received back their dead by resurrection. I think that's a clear hint in the text for us to think about, and we'll see this more next week, the better resurrection. Because throughout Hebrews, right, we've been seeing how for Christians, Christ's resurrection is powerfully at work within us even now. By coming to and believing in Christ, putting your confidence in him, he actually begins to powerfully work resurrection, eternal life within us, sanctifying us in faithfulness. And he he does so more and more as we live by faith now, more and more risking it all in confidence in him. And we can do that. Precisely because we know that in the end, we will have his resurrection. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, though, who gives us the victory over risk through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will all leave here this morning and step back into that ongoing worship of the world around us. The world is constantly worshiping. We're not the only ones in worship this morning. They worship their God and we worship ours. There's this constant church service happening throughout the world. Uh, And the liturgy and, and, and the worship of our culture in particular is always singing the praises of consumerism and comfort. The ever blaring sermon of American consumerism. Buy more, be happier, less risk. You need to be thinking about now, 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 now. Stop thinking about heaven. Live your best life now. Get on Facebook. Watch Netflix. Hang out at any one of the many distractions we have for you to not think about eternity and be alone for a minute and wrestle with your own heart. But Christ doesn't join in that chorus and neither should we. Our confidence and our trust is in Christ alone and And he is our king of a better kingdom. And as was read for us early this morning, he alone has established justice. He is our righteousness. And I think we can come to him entirely resting in the sacrifice that he's attained for us. And out of that, live lives of risky faith. Risky faith, which makes much of him and worships him. It says much about Christ and our confidence in him, when we do things where the world says, whoa, that's a bit risky. And we say, ah, that's just worship. Let's pray.